Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. We are beginning a new series tonight, and so what I want to do tonight is, is to set that up a bit, and we are looking at the book of 1 John, 1 John. Uh, and so tonight, we're just going to be starting, just at the very start of 1 John, we're going to be looking at 1 John 1, uh, verses 1 to 4. Uh, and this is um, a series that we are we're calling Proof of Life, uh, which will become apparent why we're doing that uh, in just a moment. But this, this book, this book of 1 John, was uh, written by the Apostle John, hence the title, uh, much later into his life. And so uh, many of, uh, much time had passed since uh, the very beginning of Acts as the church has being planted out and growing, and, and the gospel had spread throughout a lot of the, a lot of the Roman Empire, and um, he was writing from Ephesus, uh, a church that um, we see that uh, Paul had been a minister at, Timothy had been a minister at, and we believe uh, there's strong evidence that John was kind of one of the head uh, pastors in Ephesus at the time, and a lot of people were coming to there uh, for uh, spiritual leadership. Uh, persecution in Jerusalem had broken out uh, the, war, uh, the, the Jewish wars in 66, 67, if I'm getting that right, AD, had kind of broken out and a lot of the Christians had dispersed from there. And so that was kind of becoming a bit of a new headquarters. Uh, and so he's writing from there. And this is a, likely a, a circular letter, meaning it wasn't just written just to one kind of mob, but a, a letter that was probably sent around, particularly to the, to the churches of uh, Asia Minor, uh, which is what we'd say is modern-day Turkey. And so his situation is kind of in uh, Ephesus, in, which is part of Turkey now, kind of sending this letter out to other churches uh, in modern-day Turkey. Um, and we see, and what will become apparent, is he's battling uh, this Gnosticism, or this Gnostic idea, and you're like, I have no idea what that is. Why are you talking about garden names? Um, but basically, there was this kind of two ideas, particularly at this stage, that had kind of spread, uh, and they kind of crept in largely from Greek philosophy. And these are actually ideas that stick with us today, like that matter is evil and the spirit is good. Uh, and so, you know, we kind of want to do away with like bodily things and just have spiritual things. Uh, and so this was a problem because they were like, well, that's a problem if we think that the body is evil and the spirit is good because Christians believe that God became a man. And so the Gnostics are like, well, God didn't become a man because he wouldn't do that because flesh is evil. And so he's kind of battling that idea. And then this other kind of Gnostic idea about secret knowledge or secret experiences special things that can happen to you or special things that can be revealed to you that make you some sort of super Christian. But, you know, we never see that in any churches today either, do we? So John, the writer of this letter, he's not so much writing an essay uh, as much as kind of an encouragement. He's warning people and, and the church that he loves and he doesn't kind of necessarily so much move logically from one theme to the next as, as what Paul, who, who writes a lot of the other New Testament letters, would do, um, who's much more structured, but he's kind of more kind of drawing bigger and bigger circles around his central idea and argument, going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And we've called this, this series of, of 1 John, our take on it, Proof of Life, because as the series unfolds, we're going to see more and more about how Jesus is the source of life. And John, battling against these false teachers, also wanted to make it clear, how did you know, how do you know that you actually have the true life and light of Jesus inside you? 
What's your proof of life? If you're a Christian, how do you know it? What is the proof of life inside you? What is your assurance, as they'd say, of faith? I think what we're going to see throughout this series and throughout the, the book of First John is, is there actually are some proofs. I briefly want to touch on those, and that's knowledge, knowing. Do you know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God? One of the things we'll see from chapter 3. Right belief. Behaviour. Are we practising righteousness? Another thing that John will speak of. And this is not a righteousness to earn God's love, but because he already loves us. And another proof, I think, that John will lay out for us is relationships. How do we relate to one another, and especially within the church? Is his love in us? Is his love evident in us? If someone were to come into our church family, would there be enough evidence of us loving each other to convict us of being Christians? Is that a proof of life in our church life? Now, in all of this, what we really don't want to, and I touched on it before, is uh, create some kind of need to manufacture uh, false fruit or false works or kind of these things just because we feel like religious people do these things. We don't want to manufacture false fruit. We want to be connected to the source of life. Uh, and just kind of, we're not even in our text for today this week, but just bouncing off this, the, the same guy who wrote this wrote the Gospel of John, and in John 15 he's telling us Jesus' words And Jesus says this, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I just want to emphasize that because in uh, all of this, when we talk, we actually think, um, especially largely in the evangelical church, and rightly so, we really don't want to be identified uh, as works-based righteousness people. We don't want people to think you have to do something to earn God's love. It's simply by being connected in relationship with him through what Jesus has done on the cross. That is where our righteousness comes from. It's not by what we do, it's not by necessarily even thinking the right way, because none of us have it all right, it's by being connected to God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, all of this fruit flows out of our connection to Jesus, and so what I don't want to happen is if we're talking about, well, what are the proofs of life? I don't want people to be thinking, you know what, I'm going to try and manufacture the proofs. What I want to happen is if we see these proofs of life and you're like, you know what, that's not evident in my life, it's not evident in my community, it's not evident uh, in the Christians around me, not to think to yourself, well, that means somehow I have to kind of make these proofs happen. Maybe what it is is a sign marker pointing us to the fact that maybe we've got to reconnect ourselves to the vine. So I really want to just put that out there. So these are, these are proofs of life, not causes of life. Proofs of life, not causes of life. And it was so important for John to write this because 
believe that could be a about theology, firstly because we want to know God, but secondly because we think if we can get our theology as right as we humanly possibly can, which has its limits, but as much as we can, hopefully the outcome of the way of life of that will bear the most fruit. That's why we love theology. That's why, you know, I don't want to be blamed, like called a stickler or anything, but that's why it matters to us because we want our theology to be right because we want the outcome of our way of life to be as good as it can be. And so like lots of these Interesting teachings were, were arising, like uh, docism, which was the teaching that kind of uh, the Spirit of God, one of the forms of this is the Spirit of God actually wasn't in Jesus at his birth, but only came to rest on him at his baptism and then left again before his crucifixion. Uh, and the Jesus that the disciples uh, witnessed after the resurrection was simply just a spiritual being, not like a physical, literal resurrection. And, and this false teaching arose spectacularly early in the church, uh, like to the point where people who had actually literally seen Jesus were still alive at the time that this false theology was happening. So John's kind of writing this letter, and we'll see in this verse 1 to 4, this is one of the things that he's actually directly addressing in the first verse. Uh, Jesus literally physically rose. You know, Thomas touched his wounds. Jesus eats a meal of fish on the beach with his disciples. And John, who was writing to his beloved church in this letter, reminds them, as we are about to hear, that he was there. He saw with his eyes. He touched with his hands. He was real. And so in this letter, this letter drips his pastor, uh, his father heart for his church. And this letter drips with, I was there. This was real. What is true matters to John. That which he has seen and, and heard and touched he was real. He had a bodily resurrection. Jesus was not just a good idea. He was not just a spirit. He was man and God, our Lord. If he didn't rise physically, there is no gospel. There is no hope for us. That 1 Corinthians 15, 14 backs this up. It says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So this pastor, this Father John, he writes staringly against false teachers, saying pretty much that they're of the devil. His pastor heart is full. He doesn't just want to be right. He wants the best for his dear children. He knows where his joy is complete and he wants the same for them. And this entire letter drips this. And I know, uh, I thought I knew this, but I didn't know it fully until I became a father. Uh, my son, my little Levi, will be uh, 10 months uh, soon. And uh, I never thought, like, so much of your heart could be contained outside your body, right? Um, but my concern 
is for his faith. And John, likely at this point, the last living disciple, he writes as a loving father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to 1 John and look at your word together that it would transform us. We pray that it would be to us words of living water. Uh, We pray that it would build your church, would build your disciples, would help us to be more in love with you, would help us to live right Not that so we could be right, but so that we could be more like you. Amen. So we're going to have this verse up on the screen. Uh, If anyone, this up on the screen will be uh, ESV, the Pew Bibles are NIV, your phone Bible is whatever you've decided it's going to be. So uh, feel free to grab whatever you want. That will be up on the screen. Um, We're going to go. You can see here how he just straight away tackles this Gnostic docism idea. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So I have four points from here, and I just want to uh, paint really just four really broad brushstrokes brush which this series will then kind of expand on as John in his writing kind of draws these bigger circles out on these themes. We're looking for proof of life. Jesus is the life. So these are the four points. The first is this, the life, Jesus, existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit. Two, the life, Jesus, was made manifest, or made physical, made known to us. Three, our life comes only through him. And four, true life is only found through the author of life. So firstly, the life Jesus existed eternally with the Father, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning, Jesus Although we haven't seen, we have witnesses, like John, who have seen. The Bible uh, that some of you hold in your hands is is incredibly accurate as far as historical documents actually go. And we have a reliable record. Anyone who faces God on Judgment Day who has read John 1 would actually have no excuse We have no reason to doubt John. 
he has totally plainly told us plainly that he was there, he has seen, and he tells us plainly that Jesus is God. Uh, I've said it many times, and you'll likely get bored and throw rocks at me at some point, um, but I'm, I'm kind of not happy with how many times I've said it yet. Um, Jesus didn't come into existence in a little cute stable in Bethlehem or in his mother's womb in Nazareth. He was the person actively involved along with the Father and Spirit in the creation of the universe, that which was from the beginning. He is the resurrection and the life. He is eternal. He is from the beginning. Jesus eternally is existent. And that life was made manifest. The life Jesus was made manifest. Manifest. What, what does that mean? It was made, he was incarnate, he was brought into the world, he was made known to us. And, and in fact, all of this is actually just an echo of uh, John's gospel, uh, which he, he also wrote. This is so, so similar, which is another factor that supports that John is the author of John 1, because we, John is the author of the gospel of John as well, and, and that just sounds so similar. So I'm just going just gonna to read the beginning of John's gospel, which is it's almost mind, it's, just, it's very similar. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Unlike some of the, what some of the Gnostics were teaching, or um, this was no spirit being disguised in a temporary human suit of clothes. Neither was this uh, a mere man whom the Spirit of the Christ descended on just for a short period of time, but he was he who was from the beginning, whom John saw and heard and, and physically touched and did life with and, and likely, uh, you know, he, he travelled with him, he, he ate with him, he, he, he slept with him, he, he woke with him. This is he, this is God who was from the beginning, Just like the Gnostics try and separate out the spiritual and the physical, we can sometimes separate the knowing, the, the, the spiritual, the, the thinking from the physical world, from the doing. Just like they kind of separate, uh, you know, the body is evil and the spirit is good. This kind of Greek thinking actually influences in, in, in our entire Western culture that the body is somehow evil and needs to be overcome and the spirit is somehow good. It's not. Jesus, God, chose to become a physical, literal human being. Indwelt, incarnate, literally. Carnate comes from the word flesh. So if you like chili con carne, it's because it's flesh. It's, it's chili with meat. God incarnated. He came into flesh. It's not just spirit. And it's so important because the fact that Jesus came literally and physically is the reason why he can actually atone for us, can be our sacrifice, because he actually was one of us. He can sacrifice himself for, for humankind because he was a human. And, and our fellowship with Christ, point three, our fellowship with Christ is, is through his incarnation. And our fellowship with each other even is through his incarnation. Verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. 
why? So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so he's writing and he's proclaiming so that we can have fellowship with, with Him. And fellowship with Him is, is fellowship with the Father and the Son. Union with God can only come through the life, Jesus. Believing God's truth brings us into a living union with God, fellowship with the, with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And that is the fellowship that the apostles like John knew and enjoyed. But it's something that every believer can share with them. Our blessing of that fellowship is nonetheless real because it relies on faith and not like sight like John had. I mean, we can hear John say that which was from the beginning, I've seen it, I've felt it, I've, I've touched it, I've, I've heard it. And for him, he had faith, yes, but he saw the literal Jesus. The fact that as is just by faith and not by sight doesn't reduce the amount of fellowship that we have. We can share in that too. As Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me and believed, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. This faith in Christ is the door to fellowship with God. And John wants to write and remind his, his dear little children, his, his little church, this, uh, this group of churches in Ephesus, that Jesus is the life, that knowing him is the life, that, that the truth about him is the life and fellowship with God. And also that union with each other, with the church as a whole, as a family, can only really come through the life, through Jesus. This, the word uh, fellowship in the Bible is a, is a really interesting one. Um, it's used often in, in classical uh, Greek as to describe marriage relationships. It's, it's kind of a real deep fellowship. So this isn't a fellowship, you know, let's crack out the scones and the dry biscuits and maybe have a weak cup of tea. It's not that kind of fellowship. This is a real deep fellowship. It's the most intimate bond between human beings that there can be, is the fellowship we have as a church family through Christ. And it's particularly appropriate to, to use this to describe our relationship with God and our relationship with each other um, because it's, it's, it's a participation and a, and a sharing in that fellowship. There's no other way into genuine membership of the body of Christ, of the church, than true fellowship with Christ through faith. You cannot know God without knowing Christ. You cannot know fellowship with each other and with God without knowing the truth. All spiritual unity in the church is found in the gospel. Uh, in our kind of desire for unity in the church, if that is such a thing, um, we kind of have this desire not to, to seem disunified as a church and we must not forget in that that actually our fellowship with each other only stems from our fellowship with God and Christ. Our fellowship with one another is derived from our fellowship with Jesus. We're not a, a, a church, because uh, we're a church plant, we're not a, a church with, with deep traditions yet. We've got to watch out for that. Um, but our fellowship is not just based on the fact that we all love free coffee as we come through the door. It's a bit of a tradition around here now. Uh, our fellowship is not 
just based on the, the fact that we like to do things a particular way, enjoy a particular style of music, is based on Christ. The, the truth of, of Scripture, of the Gospel, is the only adequate source for our Christian fellowship. It's the basis of our, of our true and lasting fellowship that is more than just about kind of the food we like to eat, but it's actually that deep relationship uh, closely as described as the commitment of, of, a, of a wedding, of a marriage together. In fact, Scripture describes uh, our union um, with Christ like, like we're the bride and, and he's the groom. This is the fellowship that we have. The church, we are the bride, he's the groom. It's that deep fellowship. And it's the basis of all this is based on what God has done through Jesus. And this is what John's going to reaffirm in this letter. And, and I think we need to be reminded of this because... In the church, we can look to all other things to kind of draw us together and bind us together and, hey, say, hey, we're a group, arms around each other, buddies. Um, sometimes churches are, like, drawn together by this just vague sense of niceness. Church is for nice people who do nice things and smile a lot. But if, if our sense of togetherness, if our sense of fellowship is, is simply based on a vague sense of Christian niceness, that's not going to last because you want to know the truth is that people are not nice. <laughs> people are not people are, are heartless, soulless, not nice people. Aside from the work of Christ in them. And even then we're all a work of progress. Well, one of the preachers I like to listen to said, you know, the, the church is full of is full of snakes and liars, and there's always room for one more to slither in. If your sense of community and fellowship is based on a sense of Christians are nice people, <laughs> love you too, Siri, are based on a sense of Christians being nice people, then you're going to be pretty disappointed pretty quickly because I know that I'm a jerk. If your sense of church togetherness is based simply on family ties, well, I'm a part of the church here because my parents were and their great-grandparents parents were and, and their great-grandparents were and then their great-grandparents were and, um, and unless you're indigenous, um, probably that's as far back as great-grandparents can go for um, non-indigenous folks here. Um, but any kind of sense of family ties tying you to the church, that's not a bad thing to go to the church that your parents and grandparents went to. There's no reason that you can't do that. But if that's the only thing that binds you together... Um, what happens when families break down? What bonds you to the Christian family in that circumstance? It's got to be more than just family ties. It's got to be Christ. If the kind of the sense of togetherness that we have is simply around making the world better, like getting around a cause, um, and some of these causes are not bad things, like perhaps we could be uh, helping asylum seekers, perhaps we could be um, uh, helping more homeless people, perhaps we can be uh, doing dot, 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 insert your own favourite cause here, uh, save the trees, plant the children, whatever it is that you're into. Um, those things are not bad things, and we should actually, as a church, we've got a call to love the world and do those things, but if our fellowship is simply based around the fact that we all do that together, um, there's no power in that. Because it's not enough just to save the world. The true problem in the world is not simply that there's not enough people doing nice things. Although there should be more people doing nice things. The true problem in the world is that you and I are fallen and wicked. And we have fallen and wicked hearts. 
And it's not like if we simply band the world together and link our arms and sing, heal the world, that all of a sudden it's going to be a great place to live. Because there is darkness in all of us. There is brokenness in all of us. That the only thing that is going to make that better is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not simply gathering around and saying, come up guys, we can do this. If we simply want to gather around missional objectives together that are not sharing the gospel. It's like painting a mural on a dunny. You can make it look pretty, but inside it's still full of crap. We've got to clean it out. And only the gospel does that. If we're joined together by a vague sense of togetherness, it's no togetherness at all. Only be, by being joined in Jesus can his, and his truth can we find true community, true fellowship. You don't get it by pursuing it. You get it by pursuing Jesus. And just like, point four, just like true community is only found through Christ, true joy is only found in our relationship with Jesus. Looking for joy anywhere else is like spitting into the wind. It's pointless. Verse 4, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's some debate in some of the texts about whether this is our joy or your joy. Uh, doesn't bother me. Either way, it's still true. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete the more and more and more we are convinced of the sufficiency of Jesus, the deeper our joy will become. The more John, the writer, saw his little children being dependent on Jesus, the deeper his joy became. What made his joy complete? Seeing his dear little children, these people he was pastoring, seeing them, know these truths, live these truths, find themselves in this truth. This is what completed his joy. The problem isn't that we as a people are looking for joy and satisfaction. The problem is that we're looking in the wrong places. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, who wrote the uh, awesome Narnia films, I heard they wrote some books after that, um, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he wrote this, and, and I can't say anything uh, better to this point than this, so I'm just going to read what C.S. Lewis wrote. He wrote this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures falling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. He's writing these things that, that our joy may be complete, so that his joy may be complete. He writes to this church in Ephesus and in, in Asia Minor, not to tell them to kind of, hey, quit that, knock that off. 
fall into line, do what God says. He writes to them because he knows there's a better way, a life that has more joy, a life that is more complete. And he wants them to share in that joy. He doesn't want them to, to, to just knock it off. He wants them to, you know what, lift up your eyes and have higher ambition, have deeper joy, have deeper longings. And, and I pray, uh, and I pray that in this series we wouldn't be too easily pleased, that we wouldn't be too easily satisfied, that we would have our desires increased and not decreased, that we wouldn't be willing to settle for pale imitations of Christian life and fellowship. We wouldn't settle for anything less than than true union and intimacy with Jesus. In closing, what have you believed about the person of Jesus? Did he really come? Was he really God? Did he have a real physical resurrection? Have you let his life become real in you, be manifest in you? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. True joy is found in no one but Jesus. True life is found in no one but Jesus. True community is found in no one but Jesus. True fellowship is found in no one but Jesus. Uh, To close out the service during worship, we're going to uh, partake in communion, uh, as is our weekly habit. And um, in our communion, we we kind of celebrate our communion with Christ and it's kind of where we get the name. Our common union with Christ. And so here in this church, uh, communion is open to all Christians. Uh, So if you're here and you're from another church or this is your first time here, if you're a Christian, you're more than welcome to participate. Uh, If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the one thing that we do reserve just for those who are in Christ because uh, this is a celebration of our union with Christ. And so it's for those who are in union with Christ. Uh, We celebrate all that Jesus has done for us. He's, he came, he lived, he died, he rose. And we celebrate with, with, the, with the bread that we believe. Uh, we say it represents his body that was given, that was broken for us. And, and the juice there represents his blood that was poured out for us. And we celebrate and remember that this is the price it took to pay for our union with God and our union with each other. We celebrate our, our common union with Christ we celebrate that by remembering the sacrifice that it took to win it. And that was the death of God's Son himself, Jesus. The death of God himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you did not leave us to our own devices. But in love you You predestined, you called us to yourself. You sent your son in love to incarnate, to dwell in flesh among us. We thank you that you love us so much that you bore our grief, our guilt, our sin, our shame and brought us back into fellowship 
with you and each other through your son's death on the cross. Uh, We pray that as we remember you, uh, that you would be uh, uh, continually revealing more of yourself to us. Uh, You are so generous to us and we are ill-deserving of that, but you love us so much that you want us anyway. Uh, We pray that uh, in this series and and in the life of our church that uh, you would be made much of and that uh, through this we could know more of you and know more of uh, your Father's heart that was shown to us through that uh, Apostle John. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.